Hi, this is Natalie Kingston, and you're listening to the Cinematography Podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey there, Ben Rock. How are you doing today? I'm doing ducky. How are you doing? Ducky. Wow. All right. I'm doing okay. Uh, we got another fine episode of the Cinematography Podcast. Uh, on the show today is Natalie Kingston, who I believe you had the pleasure of talking to. Yeah, yeah. I talked to her. She is Emmy nominated for Blackbird, which you can watch right now on Apple TV. It's pretty awesome. Woohoo. Congratulations on the nomination, Natalie. That's cool. Uh, ben, tell everyone who you are and who are and what you? do you do? Who, yeah. who do you think you are is a better question. Who the hell do I think <laughs> who, I am? Who are you today? I'm Ben Rock. You can find everything you want to know about me at BenRock.com. I'm a director, a writer, a frequently editor. I like to say I do uh, horrific and uh, comedically horrific things, usually. But you <laughs> and, know. and also, but on the on the occasion that people hire me to do corporate work, I do uh, very sincere corporate work. Very, very exactly what the client wants. You're also a podcaster of many flavors. In addition to this podcast, you are sometimes yeah. featured on other people's podcasts. And of course, you do uh, pretty incredible narratives, long form stories for, you know, fine networks like Audible. Audible and uh, Shutter. Yeah, we did a long form one called Video Palace that's on Shutter. You can get it probably wherever you got this podcast. You can get it there for free. It's a uh, horror fiction podcast if you're into that kind of thing. I'm quite proud of the way it turned out. And uh, yeah, then last year we did a project for Audible called Catchers. That's more of a straightforward audio drama, but also uh, monstery. Monstery is all hell. Lots of monsters. Excellent. How about yourself, Ilya? Introduce yourself to the nice people. My name is Ilya Friedman. I've got a company called Hot Rod Cameras. Uh, we sell basically anything that has to do with photons. Uh, you know, cameras, lenses, lights, you know, things that emit photons, things that process photons, things that capture photons. That's really an overly complicated way. We sell equipment to the motion picture and television industry, and uh, we build studios. So uh, on several occasions now, we've done full studio build outs for all kinds of people, uh, find people who work in traditional media and creator economy and uh, new media stages and corporations and stuff like that. So we build studios, we sell gear, and you can find us at hotrodcameras.com. So uh, I, I, I like the photon thing. I've never heard you talk about the photon thing, and I feel like we should get into an acrimonious argument about whether or not light is a particle or a wave. It's a particle. It just sort of behaves sometimes like a wave. It's but both, motherfucker. It can be It's both, a particle sure. and a wave. Yeah, we, we can go down that path, but mm. I think we will lose 99% of our audience if we start talking too much about photons. So let's get into our close focus. And now, close focus. There's a lot of stuff that's been going on uh, in the industry, but it sounds like there might be some thawing in the strike. So a you know, light, a light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, yeah. yeah. AMPTP proposal that uh, was reported uh, as we're recording this just hours ago in Variety that the AMPTP has kind of come to the table with, let's say, some concessions to the Writers Guild. Yeah, that's interesting. Very interesting. I think that the writers uh, are probably a little surprised and taken aback, and we'll see where it goes from here. That's exciting. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious, what uh, what do you think the over-under is that by the time this episode posts to find out that they've settled the, the strike or that they're Ooh. closer to settling the strike? I don't know if we're quite there yet. 
But I think the concessions are a good step in the right direction. And maybe the uh, AMPTP, I, I hate to use the, the word producers because that's not really what they are. But there's, there's a lot of conversations actually yeah, right now about yeah. <laughs> getting rid of yeah. the, the P in the AMPTP. Yeah, yeah exactly. Companies. Yeah. For- but let's go over what a couple of the concessions that it appears might be on the table if the Writers Guild is willing to go. By the way, before we even get too deep into this, they still have to go through this whole thing again with the SAG. It's going to be a whole separate thing. That's true. But the writers have been on strike a lot longer, and I think it probably makes sense for them to come back to them first and maybe wrap up that part of the strike before the the actors. I, I don't think they want to be, you know, fighting a war on two fronts, so to speak. I think they'd probably prefer to, you know, end one before addressing the other. I, I, well, I could be wrong, though. So one of the things that writers were upset about were called mini rooms, the so-called mini rooms, where uh, they would be restricted as to the number of writers they could have on their staff. And a lot of those staff writers weren't there for the shoots and they weren't as involved. And honestly, it was hurting the AMPTP companies just about as much as it was hurting the Writers Guild, in my opinion, because what they were doing was getting rid of the Farm League. They were getting rid of the writers who were going to be the showrunners in five years time. So one of the things that the AMPTP has offered is that the showrunners basically could have the authority to set the size of their staff. Hmm. Yeah, that's, um, a, that's a big deal because they were really concerned they weren't going to have any staff at all and were going to be told like, hey, just use uh, use some sort of AI software and have a nice day. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that was also reported is that there will be greater transparency in streaming numbers, a thing that we've talked about on here before. But <laughs> yeah. I think this is like a little bit of a middle finger. They refuse to tie residuals to performance of an individual show. So if you're a writer on whatever show on Netflix or Amazon Prime, if you're a writer on The Rings of Power and it's killing it and five billion people watch it, you're probably going to get the same residual as if five people watch it. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's interesting. They did indicate that they would increase residuals similar or basically the same level they did for the Directors Guild, yeah. which was a 21 percent increase. But I understand that it's already starting at such a small, small level. It's, it's We're talking about very small dollar amounts. And then those increases work out to be like 5 percent, 4 percent or 3.5 percent above the minimums. It's not a big change. But they did also uh, agree to create a higher tier of minimum for mm-hmm. writer producers, which is a lot of people out there who are both a writer and a producer or producers who are writing a show. And so to have a, a higher tier minimum for them, uh, I think that that's probably a real good step in the right direction. Also, apparently in this Variety article, they mentioned that AI, uh, AI concerns have been addressed. They don't really get into the nut meat of how. But I don't believe that it's even on the table anymore that AI could write a show or that you could have a smaller writing staff and require the showrunner to, you know, use ChatGPT or whatever to generate a bunch of outlines that then your smaller staff would have to go off and write. So I know that the WGA is basically going to fall on its sword over the AI thing. I think that they would sooner cave on residuals than AI Mm. uh, because residuals are a thing that gets negotiated every three years. But the AI thing is, I think, an existential threat to the Writers Guild. And, you know, I've been talking to people about a lot of this stuff with regards to the to SAG and the Writers Guild. And why did the DGA and I say this as a DGA member? 
why did we roll over and let the AMPTP scratch our belly so quickly? And I think it's because it's harder to replace directors with AI, or and not just directors, but directors, assistant directors, unit production managers. I think all of us will have AI in our workflow, but you're not going to have an AI robot on set directing the actors. You could theoretically have an AI that makes the whole show, and you, there is no set because it's all computer generated. Every attempt at that that I have seen runs the gambit from looking like ass to uh, looking amusingly surreal, but not like a real thing hmm. you you couldn't make a movie with it now and everyone i talk to is like yeah but see where it's going and i'm like i don't i don't actually know where it's going like maybe it's a lack of imagination on my part no i, th- um, I think you i think I, your, your realism is is set in for you i think that a lot of people feel exactly the same way that uh that existential threat is a long way down the road it is not but here the existential today. threat for writers i think is right is, there like it's, it's, true. it's right on the edge yeah, and i think I, that To a degree with actors, like when they're talking about scanning extras and stuff like that, like that technology isn't perfect yet, but I could see it getting there. And if you gave them that leeway to do that, then maybe they would. Ultimately, uh, I think there's a there's a big issue, though. The big issue about the AI replacing entertainment is that it has to be creating something that people actually want to want to watch and has to be good. And there's not a lot of emotion by creating a an AI rendered generative AI, you know, supermodel or an interesting image or whatever it might be to actually have some sort of like emotional engagement is a bridge too far for any sort of AI right now. And I don't see it uh, accelerating. I, I really I keep being reminded of the Mechanical Turk, if you know the story of the Mechanical Turk, oh, yeah. Yeah, which, you know, is a famous put on that someone basically came up with this machine. They told everyone it was a machine. And and it could beat almost everyone in chess. Turns out there was actually a very small person inside the machine controlling it. And they did a very good job of disguising that there was a person in there. So it was a human that was conning people at the chessboard. I feel like AI, especially like the chat GPTs of the world, are a very good mechanical Turk. And that it's got a trick. That's a pretty impressive trick. But once you know the trick, it suddenly becomes far less impressive overall. And I well, definitely... I agree. And and like I even say this as a person who I love Midjourney and I love messing around with it. But Midjourney, after you've played around with Midjourney for a while and you see an interesting Midjourney image, you can pick it out. You know, you're not fooled by Midjourney very easily. Um, I agree. I, I also think it's a little bit weird for... Uh, I've been contacted by people who said, hey, check out my cool AI art. I know, I know you've done this for me. And I do think the art is very cool. But at the same time, I think it's a little bit weird when people take credit for the creation yeah. of that art. Well, so. I, I will say that like I do not act like what I'm doing is art. Oh, I, no, I think and you it, did not take any credit, but I've had other people say to me, I, like, cool, check out this cool thing I created. And I was yeah, like, it's, did it's you a create novelty. it really? Like, yeah, no, it's uh, a novelty. You, know, you, you made the prompt. I, I'm, yeah. not, I'm not a fine artist because I typed, hell is filled with meat clowns, <laughs> and then I let Midjourney turn that into an image. <laughs> and, and No the, way. And, and that was a, a very scary image. It sure was. Anyway. I, I've, I've probably <laughs> typed that one in there like 200 times. I see all kinds of possibilities for generative AI, not just in art. I mean, actually in film at some point. But I feel like there's always going to be a person operating it. Like you said, it is a mechanical Turk. I think that's actually the most perfect way I've heard anyone describe how this is. And I keep hearing like, well, it's going to replace us. It's going to replace us. It's like at a certain point, it's only derivative. It's not predictive. It's not coming up with new stuff. 
it's not even really combining stuff that somebody doesn't f- tell it to combine. It's not thinking of it. It's not creative. It hasn't uh, loved and lost. It hasn't wrecked a car. It, it hasn't had a mother who, who didn't approve of its career choice. Like, I just don't <laughs> feel like it has an emotional basis in it. How many times have we heard that so-and-so has an algorithm that can predict what scripts will be successful yeah. or can tell you what would be a good storyline? And at, at the end of the day... They all fail. It, Relativity being the most, yeah, Relativity Studios being, you know, another one of those high flyers that had a lot of fanfare and said that they had this system that could always pick the winners. And uh, how many years ago was it now Relativity went under? So I I don't know. It's it's one of those things. Here's my theory about it. And I'm going to try and keep this short, but I feel like art in general goes in these cycles where it starts getting overproduced and overproduced and overproduced. And then someone comes along and does it for with no resources and everyone gets excited about that. So I think about like. We're heading towards all, that again. All, all of Hollywood up to like the late 60s, then Easy Rider completely screws everyone up. Then, you know, stuff starts getting, well, through the 70s, it was all Cassie gritty and grungy. And yeah. then 80s, it starts getting super slick again. And then the American independent movement and stuff like Kevin Smith and Steven Soderbergh come in with stuff that's raw and real and fresh and different. Uh, you can love it. You can hate it. You know, Richard Linkletter is another one of them. And, and you, I know, feel like you, music- can, you could throw the Blair Witch and Paranormal Activity and a bunch of other mm-hmm. stuff in that same sort of that same sort of and, as well. And I think the same thing happens in music. You get like overproduced disco, overproduced glam rock, and then punk rock comes along. And then it gets, you know, the next 10 years, it gets overproduced, overproduced, and then grunge comes along. I think that what happens is that audiences start to respond to stuff that feels immediate again. Authentic. And this stuff and real. is never, yeah. there's nothing. Again, I'll be happy to, I, w- I won't be happy because I won't have a career anymore. <laughs> You'll eat but your words. I, w- yeah. <laughs> I will eat my words the day that AI can make something that's. You know, like Meryl Streep level moving and genuine and and feels real. Like and, I just, you know. Yeah. And I'm not going to patronize AI that is uh, is not that. In fact, there's so much stuff on online that it's like, hey, look, it's someone who figured out where the slow-mo button was on their phone. I, I don't really care anymore. I don't need to see another one of that. I need to see something that, that I have an emotional reaction to that someone yeah. actually, you know, put some intention behind and they, they did something real and I, I enjoyed it. I don't need to see another slow motion phone being dragged <laughs> through a puddle. That That's. That's the last thing I need. Uh, I mean, I'll take all the slow-mo phones through the puddle. Anyway, <laughs> so let's move on to yeah. our interview with uh, Natalie Kingston. Let's do it. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. So I'm here. Uh, we're in the same town, but over Zoom, as is our custom these days, uh, with Natalie Kingston, Emmy-nominated for Blackbird. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thank you for having me. So tell our audience about Blackbird if they haven't heard of it. I mean, I feel like we are so consumed right now, and God knows after the strike, it probably won't be the case anymore. But I feel like we're barraged with amazing high-end peak TV kind of stuff. And Blackbird is uh, is a great crime thriller, but like, you know, give us the basic pitch of it. Yeah, so Blackbird is, like you said, it's a crime thriller. It's based on a true story. It's about this guy, Jimmy Keene, who in the 90s was busted for a bunch of drugs and guns. He got a 10-year sentence. And in his first year of serving time, the FBI approached him basically with a deal if they were to move him to Springfield Prison, this high security prison for the criminally insane, as they call it, um, to, yeah, befriend this serial killer who they suspected to be a serial killer and get a confession out of him. Then uh, they would free him and he wouldn't have to serve the rest of his term. Yeah, so the series is really about this kind of unexpected, weird 
creepy relationship between Jimmy Keene and uh, Larry Hall, played by Taron Edgerton and Paul Walter Hauser. Yeah, and I should also say uh, one of the other stars is the late great Ray Liotta. Yes, and and he's excellent in in. I mean, the whole cast is excellent, but it's kind of heartbreaking because he was such a unique talent. Yeah, yeah, I know. Well, I I couldn't believe it when I heard it. And rest in peace, uh, Ray. Yeah, I know, I know. Yeah, it was. I'm really honored I got to do it. It was intimidating at first, and um, but he's just such a down-to-earth guy, so real, yeah. and, you know, he rarely went back to his trailer, you know, in between setups and would just stay on set and, you know, watch us light, ask questions, and it, you oh, know, really? He, he really liked to be a part of the filmmaking process, like he was a filmmaker, and ah, I thought that was, awesome. that was really cool. Tell me, what brought you to the show? How did you end up on the show? So it kind of came out of nowhere, honestly. I hadn't done TV before. This is my first TV series. Um, that was that was one of my one of the things I noticed. Yeah, you have you've got features and stuff, but you know, yeah. And, and you did the whole series. There's you know, yeah. We talked yeah. we talked to a lot of DPs on here who like they they shot the pilot or they shot the bulk of the series or they alternated, but like you did the yeah. whole thing. That's like making a what a four or five hour movie. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so when it popped on my desk, I thought it was they were looking for one cinematographer to shoot the whole thing. And I thought it was pretty far fetched just because I didn't have, you know, any TV experience. Um, But it was a producer I'd worked with before recommended me to the Blackbird Mm. team. And my first meeting was with Mikkel Roscom, who directed the first three episodes. And we just hit it off, shared a lot of the same filmmaking sensibilities. And we just had just an instant chemistry and we had just a very good conversation. So after that, I I had a meeting with Dennis Lehane and the rest of the producers. And they liked what I had to say and what I presented. And we're very much in line. And... So it, it all just happened very fast after that. Just got on a plane and flew to New Orleans where we shot, and um, which is coincidentally where I'm from. And, oh, cool. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so it just, you know, they totally trusted me, which was just an amazing opportunity for my first TV series to be able to, you know, create the look from scratch and, and maintain it throughout. And um, yeah, really, really proud of the work. What were the biggest lessons that you learned moving to doing a full series like this based on your previous experience? What are the things that if you could like send back in time and say, make sure to do this or here's where it's going to be. This is going to be awesome or this is going to be very difficult. Like what are some of those things? So many. I mean, Blackbird was such a transformative experience, you know, and <laughs> I think that was like who I was before Blackbird and then after. Oh, really? And, it, and yeah, it was just, you know, it was such a long period of time, too. It was like seven months all in, you know, with prepping and shooting. It was like nearly a hundred day shoot, you Oof. know, so just that just the sheer length of time alone, you know, like my longest feature was like right under 30 days before that. And I knew that going in, okay, this is going to be a marathon and this will be just a real test of like, you know, and my heart has always been in long form, but this is ultra long form. But I think one of the biggest things is just the the way TV is structured. You know, there's the showrunner entity that you don't have in features. It's the director is sort of the end all be all and um, as far as making creative decisions and such. But as, as a cinematographer, you really have to kind of, you know, you're, you're in the middle between the director and the showrunner and ultimately the showrunner has the final say and then you know in this case in Blackbird this is Dennis Lehane's baby and he wrote all the scripts and you know and, and it was his vision and so it's just finding that balance of you know how to collaborate with both and make making sure everyone's happy and um and then just you know this was the largest project 
that I had done, there's, you know, a lot more crew and a lot more resources. Yeah. And so just just the management of that situation. And, and I think I really thrived in that because I do well with a, a large crew and I do well delegating, but then also just getting used to just so, just the so many people that you have to talk to to get one thing done, not just in my departments, but across all of the other departments. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's just, it's, it's really big. Yeah, I, I always wonder about the the steering and ocean linerness of it. And on your website or whatever, when you look you up online, it's like you're always holding the camera. And you know, on a show like this, were you able to mm. operate, or did you have to no. sit in Video Village? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, and you know, I was like in the beginning thinking of you know toying with the idea of operating because I've always operated, and so I couldn't imagine not operating. It's like, where do I sit? What do what do I do during <laughs> a take if I'm not operating? It's just such an ingrained part of me, and you know. And I came up shooting a lot of documentaries in the beginning. And, and so and camera is really an extension of my body and myself and the way I see things. So, But after speaking to other DPs who had done TV and getting that advice from them, they advised that I did not operate. <laughs> and um, it was best to just, you know, step back. And they were right. So I made the decision to hire an oper- hire two operators. Um, we had two cameras most of the time. Sometimes it, it was single. But, you know, yeah, just because of the sheer scope of it all, it just, um, it was much more efficient and, and just better, all, you know, across the board for me to just step back and orchestrate. And a lot of times, you know, it's like while we're lighting a scene or something, we I might have to talk to the rigging gaffer who's visiting the set to plan certain things ahead of time and um, taking that time on set to do that. Or if I was stuck behind the camera, that, you know, may not be able to happen. So it was the right decision. I got, you know, I got in the flow of it. I bring my own Flanders monitor to every project because I don't really like getting stuck in the DIT tent. I just feel very removed from set. So I like to have my Flanders just up close while I'm lighting. So that was always just right by camera with iris wheels and, and I would sit there. So, yeah. uh, no one's ever told me that they brought their own monitor to set. So yeah. uh, h- how is this working? Like, do you like your own Flanders monitor because you have it calibrated? Yeah, exactly. 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 And it's one less variable. And so it's either right next to the director. Usually by the director, there's scripty and other people. Yeah. And so that gets crowded. So I like to have my own, like I said, with the iris wheels and gaffer and key grip can sit next to me. So it's either, but sometimes Video Village can be too far away. So I like to be as, as close as possible. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. So uh, how much of a challenge was it for you as someone who's used to operating to hand the steering wheel to a different operator? Were you watching their operation being like, no, or was it like collaborating with yet another artist and like seeing Mm -hmm. the possibilities that each one of them brought to what you were doing? Yeah. At at first it was like, uh, you know, it was hard. It was, it was yeah. just because it was a totally new way of working. And I, and I felt so like kind of stuck behind the monitor and not, you know, getting to get my hands on camera. But once I kind of, you know, got used to it, then yes, it was, it was much more of a collaboration. And I had two great operators, Colin McDonald and Matt Bell, who were very collaborative and shared similar sensibilities. So yeah, it was, it was very easy to work with them and, and it was, and it became fun and became nice because I knew I could just tell them what I wanted and, and I could walk away and trust that it would be set up the way I intended or better. And, and that was nice and freeing to be able to walk away and know that they could just handle it and I could focus on lighting. 
Well, like now moving forward, do you see yourself as someone who would gravitate more towards working with an operator or do you want to get your hands on the camera again? Yeah. So I just wrapped a film and uh, I hired an operator and we kind of split the duty. So I jumped in whenever I felt like I just needed to operate, but he, he operated most of the time and it made sense for that project. So I don't think I'll give up operating completely, but it'll probably yeah. just be on a per project basis. But I, I do, I do like to step back and sometimes it is nice not to get bogged down with just, you know, the little thing, especially when you have a really good operator who you can trust, you know, to work with the onset dressers, to get everything yeah. in the frame and, and people who are paying attention to all of those little details is like I would do because I could be obsessive with, you know, every single thing in the frame. Yeah, that's nice to be able to, to give that off to someone. So let's dive a little bit more into Blackbird. It's a period piece. It's a 90s piece, which as a person of the 90s always makes me happy just for nothing else, just the the needle drops, all the music that's going to be in a show like this or Yellow Jackets where we're living in the 90s. But when you're approaching a period piece like this, what do you think is your operating philosophy about how to photograph it? Was there any discussion with you and the showrunners, directors, whatever, about the basic approach and like the role of camera in the show? Not really in terms of the 90s period. Yeah, I wasn't trying to force a 90s look, if you will, you mm. know, with the way I lit things or frame things or anything like that or overly grading things in a certain way. I think, you know, a lot of that came through with our locations and production design and costume design and, For sure. um, and hair and makeup. Um, cars and, and hair I, and computer monitors. Cars, yeah, cars, exactly. Computer, all of that stuff, music, you know, and that did a lot of the heavy lifting. So I, I felt like I really didn't need to do anything else on the cinematography end to reinforce that. So how is the camera interacting with the world then? Is it a participant? Like, how are you approaching it? What was the role of camera in the storytelling of the show? Yeah, so it's the role of the camera was never to be judgmental. It was an earnest camera, but also mm -hmm. subjective at the same time, if that makes sense. So it was never to create like a th very theatrical presentation of a serial killer in making him or any of the people feel really larger than life. It was always to feel very still visceral and grounded. I wanted to raise more questions and give answers. You know, I wanted the audience to come up with their own judgments of these men, because at the end of the day, the show was really an examination of toxic masculinity and misogyny and where hmm. each of these males lies on that spectrum. And life isn't so black and white, like here's a bad guy full of 100% bad and here's a good guy, you know, every, everyone has some good and bad. And so it was just an examination of that. And so I didn't want the camera to just paint the picture of like, here is a, you know, overly bad guy and, and not condoning the serial killer, but just, you know, showing, showing him as a human, just as we showed Jimmy Keene as a human. Yeah, I, I love that because I feel like you could have shot their conversations however the hell you wanted it. It wasn't like uh, in Silence of the Lambs, you know, where we're shooting right down the barrel of the lens. It wasn't like something yeah. that draws you in and makes you think about the shot while you're watching it. But I love yeah. I love that idea of the mirror image of them. Um, yeah, yeah. And it, and it was, it, uh, as I recall, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, but it was, uh, it, they were clean shots. They weren't like, we weren't seeing a little piece of out of focus shoulder or anything like that in those shots. It was like 
Yeah, on those particular ones, they were clean. Yeah, when they were center punched. Yeah, the the Roger Deakins thing of almost being in the cameras between the conversation. uh, Exactly, exactly, and that was the idea. And 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 just like the philosophy as a whole with the cinematography was to stay out of the way, and not so much where we weren't doing anything. I mean, this was very controlled and very lit. But it was never to really show our hand. And a lot of times it was about restraint and not moving the camera. So that when we did move it, when we did push in, there was some you know, kind of motion with the camera. It was really purposeful and, and you felt it. And, and a lot of things I just wanted to come across and hopefully it does more on a subconscious level. Yeah, yeah. I hear what you're saying there from a lot of people who are, especially in, in the television world, where I feel like there's pressure to just have the camera constantly moving. Like I think about, I mean, yeah. like this is going going back, but the CSI Miami-fication of yeah. camera where it's like yeah. you just have a, a plain old dialogue scene, but you've got two dollies working at the yeah. same time in opposite exactly. directions. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and I feel like almost like in the cinematography world, there's kind of this thing of like, okay, we can move the camera however the hell we want, but like, why like why exactly exactly and that's what i didn't want to do like because you you run the risk of doing that i think people get tempted to do that and especially scenes with a lot of dialogue and people just sitting and talking you feel like you have to do something because you have these tools and and, you know and and that's just not my sensibilities to just move the camera just to do it so it was always like why you know asking ourselves why are we moving the camera why are we framing things a certain way why are we on a 40 versus a 50 mil you know, um, really, really being intentional. And I wanted to just keep that and preserve that language throughout, you know, never go on longer lenses further back. We rarely did that only when we, we specifically wanted that objective perspective, but always staying like in 35, 40, sometimes 50 millimeters, like within oh, this conversation. What, what camera three, was it? The Mini LF, the Alexa Mini LF. Okay. Large Full format. Full Large frame, formats. Yeah. So that means that you're you were kind of living on wider lenses then for the most exactly. part. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Those were those three focal lengths were our hero lenses. That's kind of oh, really? all we used. Yeah. I could have shot the whole thing with those three lenses. That's cool. <laughs> yeah. Now, you know, you said that when they first approached you, they wanted to have one DP shoot the whole thing. Do you know why they wanted one cinematographer? Because I feel like it takes prep time away from you and other directors on subsequent episodes unless they spaced out production somehow. And and they did do that. So it was structured to have one cinematographer. Yeah. So they, they wanted a singular vision and they wanted that constant. And um, I appreciated that. And what we did, we shot the first three episodes and then we stopped and I prepped with the second director, Jim McKay. And then we shot the fourth episode and then five and six were shot together and I had a, like a, a little break and they were just like one week breaks and I, pre- I prepped with Joe Chappelle for the last chunk of it. Now, when you're when you're doing that and obviously you're working with a showrunner and the showrunner has chosen the director, but when you're working with directors on a show that you established the look on, does the director ever say, hey, I want to, you know, put on a 150 millimeter lens and shoot through this bush? And you're like, yeah, you know, like the look that we've established is this other thing. Uh, does that ever even happen yeah. on any level? Are you quality control uh, or at least yeah. like. I mean, I understand that the director's in charge, but like, would you say whatever you want to do, but just so you know, this is the way that we've yeah. been doing that kind of thing. 
Yeah, um, my job was to, you know, fight for the vision and to keep and to hold that integrity of, of the visual language. And look, and I've heard those stories from other DPs where that has happened. And, and I know that gets tricky, but in our case, it didn't happen. The other two directors came in and, and they, you know, they had watched all of the cuts of everything we'd shot so far. They liked what we were doing and they totally got it and they yeah. didn't try to change anything. So I think it feels, you know, we used all the same, you know, again, the same focal lengths across the board for those episodes as well. We never changed the way, you know, we approached scenes and coverage. And, you know, it's not like we all of a sudden started shooting with five cameras and we started spraying down the room. You know, yeah, it, was, yeah. <laughs> it was very, yeah, it was very much shot the, the same way that we had established. So I appreciated that. And I imagine that could get, yeah, really hard when you're, you've been on, you know, for months and then you come in with, you know, a stranger who you've never worked with who wants to kind of change it all up. Yeah. But that didn't happen, thankfully. <laughs> Well, and also, you know, you brought up working with the showrunner, like, you know, if you're making a movie, any of your ideas are probably just going to be run by the director and it'll be between you and the director. And I'm sure producers and stuff will have questions or whatever. You're around yeah. each other. You talk. But like yeah. on something like this, where you're coming from one person's showrunning vision and it, this is their big thing and you have the director, how much mm -hmm. how much flexibility did you have or did you have to like anything that was outside of the scope of what you had already discussed, did it have to go through two different channels? How, how does that work? No, not really. I mean, Dennis did give me a lot of creative freedom. He very much was in, in you know control, but he gave everyone a lot of creative freedom, like the actors, like remember he told them, you know, these are just the words on the page, feel free to change them up if, as long as you get the point across. And I mean, his writing is so good. I don't think they end up really changing anything, but he, he was like that. Yeah, he was like that with me and the production designer and costume designer. And as long as we were, you know, telling the story in the way that he saw it, he gave us a lot of room. So it wasn't that rigid in that way. So if I had an idea and um, like, for example, the opening shot of, of episode one, was of Jessica Roach, one of the victims, um, mm. riding her bike down a cornfield. A haunting, haunting, and beautiful image. Thank you. And so that was, you know, something that, you know, really wanted to do is the opener of the series and, you know, was with a, it was on a techno crane and it had to be at a, obviously a specific time of day at magic hour. And we, you know, really had to nail it. And the, we set out to shoot that on day three. And uh, on that day, we, uh, the weather was not playing to our advantage. It was like just a cloudy day. I think it rained and we'd lost time. I think we had to stop because of the weather and we didn't even get to that shot. And we, we shot some other things with her on a bike for a scene in episode two when Greg Kinnear's character is sort of like imagining Larry Hall's van pass and imagining Jessica Roach on a bike and it's more long lens and it is very specifically for that sequence. So we always planned to go back and pick up the opener at that location, which was like an hour, hour and a half away from New Orleans and from our sort of base camp area. And it, it kept getting punted further and further along. And as they were cutting the episode, they put in one of those longer lens shots of Jessica Roach from that they were using for episode two as a placeholder. And everyone was like, including this, yeah, I think this works. And I think, you know, it's it's serving the purpose and it's fine. And it, and it did, it did work, but it, it wasn't an, a show opener, you know? Yeah. And um, 
And so I was like, oh, we have to find a way to shoot this. And so I kept, you know, talking to Dennis and the producers. I'm like, let's please make sure we go back and shoot this, Some, you know. And down to like day 93 out of 95. And we still haven't shot it, you know. And, oh, man. You know, and I bring it up again. And I kept fighting for it. And I'm like, we have to get this crane. We have to get it out here in this cornfield. And we we have to do it. I'm telling you, it's worth it. We have to just, you know, gamble it. We'll, I, I have a feeling we'll get good weather. We'll get our sunset. And, you know, we have we have to fight for it. And, and we finally were able to make it happen on day 95. Oh <laughs> but my I know God. I, I was, I was such a pain because I kept fighting for it. Um, but we got the sunset, we got the shot and we got some other bonus stuff. And, and now it's, you know, it's, it's no, it's, it's a strike. And, it's and, a, it immediately gets your attention. Like it is, yeah, it's, yeah. it it's like, this is, these are the stakes of this show. You and, know? And, I, and I felt like we owed it jessica wrote you know she, she needed hmm. that magic hour she needed that light we needed we needed to do give her that and, and not that the other shot wasn't good but it just um it, it was meant for something else and so that was a thing about like you know dennis having trust although you know he was kind of begrudging oh god this is i don't think we need it but he still trusted me and still was yeah. like okay fine if you say we need it then let's do it well, it's also kind of he, yeah. the, the reverse magic of, of editing is that you fall in love with your temp stuff mm-hmm, and you go mm-hmm. like, oh, yeah, this this temp music works. We don't need to have a real score. You know, can we license this instead or we can live with whatever this grade is? And and it's like, no, no, no. You got to purge your brain of that stuff and be like, what makes the best show? And, right, you know, it, right. I, I love hearing stories like that where like, you know, it, it, I mean, it doesn't sound like it was a fight fight, but it sounds like something yeah, no, that yeah. that that needed an advocate. And you were the one who needed to step up and advocate for it, because as the person who was shooting the whole the whole show, you probably more than anyone except the showrunner had the whole show in your head, you know, because yeah. each, yeah. each director's in there doing their bit, but they're not thinking of the whole series, you know. Exactly, exactly. And I felt responsible for that. And you have to know when to pick your battles. Like, I couldn't be like that with everything, you know, um, but I knew that was that was very important. I'm ready to move on from Blackbird. Well, actually, the one thing I would like to know is getting that Emmy nomination. Again, like we're just so saturated and there's so many amazing shows going on and so few shows get Emmy nominated. Like, what was it like to know that out of all this, all this amazing television going on, that you are one of the ones who was who was singled out for your work on this? Yeah, it still feels really surreal. And I forget about it and then remember and I'm like, oh, wow. Yeah. And I'm just so honored, you know, my first TV series to get an Emmy nomination is, is a pretty big deal. And um, yeah, it's just hard to believe. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm really, really proud of the work and um, proud of the whole team. And I had an amazing crew who all contributed to the cinematography. But yeah, I'm just really, really stoked and honored. Excellent. So let, let's go back a little bit. I always want to know from people, what was like the first moment of your life where it occurred to you that cinematography was a career path you could go down? And like, what was it that attracted you to that? When I was like 10, I didn't know I wanted to be a cinematographer, but I knew I wanted to be behind a camera making things. At 10? Um, yeah, around 10, because, you know, I, my parents had a VHS camcorder and... I, so I was like a really creative child, always doing something like creating 
plays or photo shoots with my Barbies or in circuses or puppet shows or, you know, it was always like a big production. Mm. <laughs> Nothing was ever simple, you know. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I had a, a ton of creative energy. So when they brought home the video camera, you know, for them, for home videos, <laughs> I got my hands on it. It was like, oh, this is another tool in the repertoire. This is like, I could make something, you know, I could film these plays. So that's kind of what ended up happening. I would, I would, <laughs> I would convert these like stage plays into little films. So I would film them, not just like on the stage, but like a little movie. And um, so that's kind of became what I did. And I remember like one I was really proud of called, called The Night in the Spooky Mansion. And uh, <laughs> it, it was a, it was like I got a children's book uh, from the library and um, it was like a children's stage play book. And that was one of them like, OK, this is cool because my grandmother lived across the street from this house that felt like this spooky mansion. It was like abandoned and it was we were always scared of it. So we shot like all of the exteriors there and then went across the street to my grandmother's house and shot all of the interiors. So we like were running back and forth like a million times because of course, you know, I'm editing in camera. Yeah, I was about to say, were you, at, yeah, <laughs> did you have something to edit on or were you just shooting it in sequence? Yeah, shooting in sequence, yeah. But yeah, that, that idea, I just became obsessed. So I just, I guess, was stubborn enough to believe that like maybe I could do this one day, work in movies. <laughs> So went to college, majored in mass communications. It was like the closest thing I could find to film that my, my college oh, didn't have what, a film what college? program. It was the University of Louisiana in mm. Lafayette. But shortly after college, I got a job at a local TV station and it was um, in Louisiana and very small TV station. It wasn't even a news station. It was more like public access-ish. And But they gave me my own show that I got to just basically run. So I shot it and directed it and edited it and oh, wow. um, wrote it. And it was doc style. And I worked with this on-camera host and we would just go around the area and find, the show was called Unconventional. So we'd find just kind of off the beaten path people, artists, just whoever, you know, and um, kind of tell their story just day in the life of. So that was like really my film school because um, I didn't go to film school at all. And oh, but wow. I just, yeah, I just really cut my teeth I, there. I was waiting and, for, I was waiting for, and then I applied to AFI, but. No, um, no, I thought about it, but I just, I didn't have, you know, the resources and it just wasn't feasible. I'd already gone to college and, you know, it just um, didn't make sense for me. But yeah, that. The TV station really changed my life. It, it uh, I learned so much. I learned how to operate the camera um, and the editing experience. It just, I'm so thankful for that. And um, I just really learned how to tell a human story. And then I started like freelance camera operating, like in live sports. And I really, really learned how to operate um, just like live, you know, college and high school football and baseball. And yeah, yeah. you can't um, ask them to they, score another touchdown. They, yeah, they gotta, exactly. You got to you gotta uh, get it right the first time. <laughs> and then kind of just started shooting little stuff uh, on the side, you know, um, like small little local commercials and then short films and all, all still videos. in Lu all, all still in Louisiana at this yeah, point. Yeah, all still in Lafayette, Louisiana. 
And was there was there any sense? Because I'm assuming that at some point is in this uh, is when the tax incentives hit in Louisiana, and there was a big industry there. Was there any sense that you could just stay there and have your career there, or did you know you had to move to a bigger production yeah, center? At some point, I thought I could. In the back of my mind, I'm like, I think I'm probably going to have to move to LA at some point. But I was I fought it for a really long yeah. time. So I just started shooting more, you know, on my own, and then yeah, I eventually moved to New Orleans got my first feature which was a documentary that led to another documentary and then that eventually led to our first narrative feature and then you know the project slowly just started getting bigger yeah then eventually moved to los angeles yeah, you actually shot a documentary that I saw years, uh, not that many years ago, Bathtubs Over Broadway, that I thought was just an oh. amazing, for people who uh, haven't, yeah. who ha- who are unfamiliar with it, like Bathtubs Over Broadway is about this period of time, I guess it was in the 60s, 70s, maybe? Yeah, or 50s, 60s. Where they would get like top Broadway composers and singers to do like mm-hmm. this corporate work. So Industrial be, musicals is what they yeah, call them. Yeah. Exactly. They'd be singing about my, my bathroom or something. Exactly. It's so funny you know this. It's so good. Oh, yeah. No, no, I, I love that. I love that documentary. I thought it was I thought it was great and I actually listened to that album a bunch of times. Like I, I thought yeah. it was it's always weird when you kind of stumble across a weird subculture of entertainment that you were just yes. unaware of entirely. And exactly. it's like you can tell that the people who wrote these were like serious songwriters, serious like the, they were great musicians doing this corporate work that probably paid more than their their theater habit um absolutely but. yeah it, it was so fun to work on we met some amazing people and i kind of identified with that because i i've done a lot of industrials and corporate videos you know that yeah. i never showed anyone but that paid the bills so i could shoot short films you know on the side and yeah so when you sort of steered down the road of cinematographer, it sounds like you were doing directing, editing, producing, basically, uh, and mm-hmm. and cinematography. What was it about cinematography that pulled you specifically down that road? Because I could just as easily see this story ending with you saying, I'm going to go be a director, or I'm going to go do, mm-hmm. and, and, or I'm going to go be a producer, or I'm going to go open my own production company and make my own stuff. What was it about cinematography that pulled you in that direction? Yeah, because I was torn between kind of editing and shooting for a minute. And I'd worked as an editor. I got a job at a um, a post house that kind of set up shop in Lafayette. You know, so I got a little taste of editing and I liked it, but I missed being on set where the action was. So I knew I just couldn't sit in a dark room behind a desk all day. But yeah, cinematography, just being behind the camera, being the one in charge of framing something a certain way, lighting something a certain way, lensing something a certain way to make someone feel a certain way or show them another perspective, immerse them into another perspective that they hadn't seen before and maybe change their life by one degree. Mm. Um, Really just was, I thought, is just such a powerful thing. And finding a unique way or new visual language for every film that I shoot is is just completely exciting to me. And how like each project is wholly different and a blank canvas and an opportunity to just combine the tools of cinematography in a different way than I've done before. And that's what like, really keeps me coming back. Excellent. I love that. So before we go, where can our listeners like find you online? Are you on social media? Do you like talking to people on social media? Do you have a website? I, I know you have a website cause I went to your yeah. website. But. My website, it's my name, natalie kingston.com. And, um, I do Instagram. It's just my name. 
Cool, cool. Well, for anyone who hasn't watched it, I can't recommend highly enough. Go check out Blackbird. Uh, episode three is the one that you are Emmy nominated for, but uh, it's serialized, so y- you have to watch the whole thing. But it's it's really great. See it if for no other reason. See it to see you know one of the final performances of uh, the great Ray Liotta, and it's a really great story. I'm really excited that it's out there. And uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, so that was Natalie Kingston. Natalie, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was great to meet you. Uh, Congratulations on your Emmy nom. Best of luck at the Emmys. But really, you're a winner just for getting nominated for an Emmy. Darn tootin'. That's awesome. Great looking show. All right, Ben, it is time to pay some bills. Yay! Uh, We got to thank our fine friends over at Aerie. If you're not familiar with Aerie, you're under a pretty big rock. Aerie is a multinational. Yeah, what are you doing listening to a cinematography <laughs> podcast if you don't know who Aerie is? Come on. Aerie is a multinational corporation uh, based in Munich, Germany. They've been there over 100 years. They have offices in Rome and the U.S. And I actually want to mention today, you know, amongst all the different locations and things that they do, they create all kinds of technology. They've got a stage in London, the Aerie London stage is a virtual production stage and it has a full 360 degree volume and there's a bunch of images on the uh, website and we'll put a link in the show notes as well so you can check out just sort of the capabilities of this but airy doesn't do anything halfway this is an impeccable amazing production studio and uh, there's a great article actually on the Aerie website about a music video that was shot there recently for the Chemical Brothers. And they have a really cool conceit in this music video, which is there's a dancer inside of an Airstream trailer. And every time she goes in or out of the trailer, the entire world changes. And it's changing because they use Unreal Engine and they have this 360 degree you know, virtual stage and the whole video, there might be cuts in it. It doesn't feel like there's any cuts. And so the fact Ooh. that they've got this sort of like you know, cool back and forth, back and forth. And every time I need to check that out, sounds cool, radically is radically different, radically changes. It's uh, that studio magic. There's that that, you know, Hollywood magic, the magic of make believe. Well, they did a, a really wonderful demo piece here. And if you were in the business and looking for a virtual stage and you're shooting in the UK, you really owe it to yourself to take a look at the Airy Stage London, which is deeply, deeply impressive for the facility and also the, the capabilities. And we'll put a link to the Chemical Brothers video sort of uh, expose on the Aerie website. And uh, man, every time you turn around, Aerie is doing something new, doing something cool. No exception here with this one. Uh, check out the Chemical Brothers uh, video and also this information about Aerie's virtual stage. It's super cool. And now, short ends. All right, Ben, it is time for our famed short end portion of the show. This is where we talk about our weekly obsession. It could be anything. It doesn't even have to be part of the industry, but you know, it, mm. it, it often is. What is your obsession this week? What are you, what are you all about? Is it a podcast? <laughs> no, not this time. It's a news item. Ooh, it's an inter- news item. entertainment. Okay. Is it a Trump item. getting indicted in Georgia? Uh, I mean, like, uh, yeah, sure. Uh, but uh, I'll, I'll go with you. But uh, no, not really. Oh, okay. It's about Avid. Now, uh, if you know me, like our, our good friend, our good mutual friend, Ben Hirschleder, he's uh, written books about the Avid. He teaches Avid. He's an amazing Avid he, editor. He's a smart uh, cookie, too, that and, guy. I don't know how I feel. I, it almost would be good to get Ben on here to talk about it if it goes much further. But basically, Avid Technologies, which doesn't just own Avid, it also owns Pro Tools, which is the leading sound editing software. But uh, anyway, Avid and Pro Tools 
are for sale and uh, they're being acquired by supposedly a private equity firm called STG uh, for $1.4 billion. Mm-hmm. And uh, Avenue Pro Tools are the industry leaders. Name a TV series. There's probably uh, like a nine out of 10 chance that it's edited in Avid. Avid is the main one. It, I'm just interested to see where this goes because it would be, uh, to me, super weird and disruptive to our entire industry if Avid or Pro Tools got absorbed into somebody else, if they if they were not sold as standalone products of their own as they have been. I mean, maybe if they were combined in the way that DaVinci Resolve put Fairlight, Fairlight, which was one of Pro Tools' competitors, into DaVinci Resolve so you could edit and then move to another room and edit sound with Pro Tools-like control. I could see them doing that, but Avid, uh, I think that the Avid per month price just for Avid, just for Media Composer, is like $50 a month. $50 a month is what you pay for the entire Adobe suite. So that's like Photoshop and After Effects and Audition and Premiere and then a million web design things that I will never use and lots of stuff. And that's how much you could pay for just Avid. But I always thought, well, they know their market. Like that's that's what that market will pay for just that because it is that much ahead of everyone else in terms of being the leading software for what it does. Yeah, it's super useful and it's it's everywhere. Yep. In fact, even in the room where I'm recording this, I'm off. Uh, my wife and I share an office, and I'm often on this side of the office editing something in Premiere, and she is often on the other side of the very same office using Avid because she makes house hunters, and that's what they cut house hunters in. Excellent. Anyway, just like let's keep an eye, see where this goes, see if Avid is still recognizable, uh, maybe a year or two from now. Yeah. Who, uh, who knows what will happen? So, Ilya, what is your pet obsession of the week? Well, I'm taking a page out of your playbook, and it's a podcast. Oh, no. <laughs> which is which is why I had to joke if you were having a podcast. Oh. But yes, I've rediscovered a podcast that I originally think I had started listening to like in 2017, and it's called Behind the Brand with Brian Elliott. Brian Elliott, he's a customer of Hot Rod Cameras. He's bought a ton of equipment from us and he's got a, a studio set up and he goes out and he shoots these interviews. It's a podcast, it's a YouTube channel, and it's just, it's been around for a long time now. And I have to say that he's so good. He, I, I listen to his podcast, not just for the people that he has on it, but also to hear him. His interviews are so good and he is a active listener. He's always got follow-up questions and he can massage the direction of the conversation. And I, I'm sure there's probably some editing in this podcast, but it never feels like it. It feels so Mm. smooth and so good. You know, I got to say, he's got quite a few people from uh, our industry on behind the brand. He says it's a podcast for entrepreneurs, but you know, he's had like Ken Burns and Rain Wilson and, uh, you know, authors. He had Malcolm Gladwell. He's had, uh, yeah, he's got, uh, you know, well, you got to be on your game to talk to Malcolm Gladwell. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I I mean, and absolutely. He talked to one of the co-founders of Netflix. He's got really, really fantastic people. Did he tell him to pay the goddamn writers? (laughs) Anyway, so go on. It it was some years ago, so I don't think that was Mm -hmm. going on. I think he even had Tony Hawk on at one point. Here's the thing. He says it's behind the brand and brand is pretty generic because a lot of people can have their sorts of brands things. But because the podcast can talk to so many different types of people and so much stuff, it is not uh, repetitive. And I don't feel like, oh, it's just another one of these. You get to hear a little bit about Brian's story. You get to hear a a little bit about his life. It's mostly about his guests, of course, but he figures out 
ways to work in the small talk into the interview, which just blows me away. I'm completely blown away by this guy as a host. I'm really proud to call him a client. I'm really glad that he shops at Hot Rod. And man, he's just making great stuff. And so I really wanted to call a shout out and we'll put a link in the show notes at camnoir.com. But if you haven't heard Behind the Brand, give it a listen. I have a feeling there's someone he's had on there that, that you will likely find interesting. And yeah, pay attention just what an incredible host he is. That guy is just, he's, he's the I best. Will. Yeah. 1000% check that out. Uh, have you ever heard the Jordan Harbinger show? No, I don't know that one. Yeah. Check out the Jordan Harbinger show. It's similar to what you're talking about. Like he just, he's a great interviewer. He brings on a, an outrageous diversity of guests. He really has a very distinctive personality, but it's not so Joe Rogan-ish in any way. It doesn't kind of become about him, but he's really smart and incisive. Uh, I don't know. Ch- check it out. All right. So uh, Ben, I think that just about does it for a show today. Who do we have to thank? Well, this time we're going to shake it up. No, we're not. It's the same three people. Uh, We should start by thanking Alana Cody, who's working her ass off getting us all these kick-ass interviews. And we have one coming up. I don't want to oversell it, but you and I were both on this interview. No, it's great. It's so good. I can't wait. I I, could have talked to this person all day. I was so fascinated with everything they said. It was was delightful. Then we should also thank Ben Katz, who I think we made it medium hard for him today. Mm -hmm. Like, maybe not. I think we just rambled a a bit more than we should. He probably needs to edit us a bit. Yeah. yeah, but uh, Ben Katz, who is a phenomenal world-class podcast editor, we appreciate everything that he does for us. You have no idea how hard he's working in the background to make this a tight show. And then last but never least, Kay Zalatrachi, who uh, recorded every scrap of music that you have heard in this episode and every episode. You can check him out at musicbykays.com, hire him to score your next movie, or color correct your next movie, or do CGI for your next movie, or direct your next movie does Kays do all those things he does Kays really does yeah. uh but if you go to music by Kays, the website is uh, heavily uh, weighted towards his music composition which is how he got into the business and he is an amazing composer check him out all right so ben i know you already gave it away at the beginning of the show but where can people find you if they want to track you down benrock.com is where i'm at check me out you can find all the links to my social media stuff there find me on linkedin or twitter or facebook threads blue sky i'm on all that crap now jesus christ oh it's a headache it's a full-time job just reposting the same crap on all these goddamn sites mm. how about yourself Ilya? where can people find you most of the time you can find me uh on linkedin if you yeah i'm not actually hanging out on linkedin but if you go there and you connect with me uh, you, you can get all my contact stuff but i'm also on a, a few of the socials but uh, hot rod cameras hotrodcameras.com that's uh that's our shop and uh if you reach out to me at the shop i'll get back to you And uh, if you have a studio that needs building, let me know. You need to build out. You need gear. Uh, We are actively doing that right now for someone, and uh, we could do it for you, too. If you have photons you need created or aimed at something or or recorded on. Yeah. Yeah. You you need the photon passed through one sort of medium into another. We can help you with all those things. Yeah. You're a photon consultant. (laughs) We're a photon consultant. Uh, We are a photon uh, enthusiasts. Yeah, we're, we're photon heads over here at Hot Rod for sure. Get get that on a t-shirt, man. All right. Well, I'll uh, let's uh, wrap it up. Ilya, you want to take us out? Thanks for listening. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.